Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41, as we continue our study on the life of Joseph. God made it for good. And we're learning a lot, I trust, and being challenged and encouraged. And God is working in our lives as we study through the life of this great man of faith, Joseph. Genesis chapter 41. And we'll begin reading there in just a few minutes. Genesis chapter 41. If you don't have a Bible with you, it should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Grab that. Open up to the very first book of the Bible. Genesis, find the 41st chapter. And we'll read there in just a few minutes. Two men were riding on one of those bicycles built for two. You've seen those, I'm sure. And they were going along and they came to a steep hill. And it took a great deal of struggle for these men to complete what turned out to be a very steep hill, a very steep climb. And when they got to the top, the guy on the front said, man, that was a hard climb. And the guy in the back responded, yes, it was. He says, if I hadn't kept the brakes on all the way, we would have rolled back down the hill. You ever felt like that guy on the front of that bike? You're pedaling along and you're going along and you're trying your hardest to get somewhere. It seems like it's uphill all the way and it seems like somebody's in the back of you applying the brakes the whole time. You think Joseph ever felt like that? He was just living his life, doing what was right, and he was constantly getting in trouble. He was being mistreated. He faced injustice. He faced hardship at every single turn. But the key to Joseph's life was this. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And he passed these tests. He passed the test of the pit where his cold hearted brothers threw him before selling him into slavery. He passed the test of predator Potiphar's wife as she tried to seduce him and then ultimately falsely accused him when he would not yield to her sinful desires. He passed the test of the prison where he was serving time for a crime that he had not committed. And now he's about to face another test. And you know what? This perhaps is the greatest test of all for this man, Joseph. It is the test of promotion and prosperity. The test of promotion and prosperity. And that may seem strange to you. How could promotion, how could prosperity be a greater test than the pit and predator and prison? Well, think about it. As J. Oswald Sanders once wrote, not every man can carry a full cup. Sudden elevation frequently leads to pride and a fall. The most exacting test of all is to survive prosperity. The Bible teacher from days gone by, Theodore Epps, said this. Prosperity often brings pride and pride goes before destruction. Prosperity often makes a man hard and selfish. Frequently, it can cause him to forget the friends of his humble youth. And worst of all, it can cause him to forget God. Think about it. In the hard days, in the hard times, in the lean times, a man or woman will look to and lean on the Lord. But then prosperity comes, and with that prosperity comes the danger of feeling self-sufficient. And not only feeling self-sufficient, but the danger of living that way, like you truly are self-sufficient. So I thought about this, is this not one of America's problems today? The great prosperity that we've enjoyed for so many years. Who needs God when we have money? Who needs God when we have stuff? Who needs God when we have credit to draw upon? 
And I find even the church is not immune to this. In fact, as I thought about this, I thought about the words of a church in Revelation chapter three written to this church, the church of Laodicea. The Bible says there and unto the angel, the church of the Laodiceans write, these things saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth because thou sayest, listen, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried to the fire that thou mayest be rich. And white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with salve that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that have an ear, let him hear what the spirit saith unto the churches. Adversity, adversity can be very hard. But listen, prosperity can be even harder. But how did Joseph get to this place in his life? How did he get to this test? How did he make it to this place? Well, we know it took him 30 years to get there. He had been sold into slavery at the age of 17. You can mark down Genesis 37 too. And we know he stands before Pharaoh now here in Genesis chapter 41 at the age of 30. You'll find that in verse 46. So 13 years had gone by since he last saw his beloved father. 13 years of hardship, really. Thirteen years of training and reality. You see, God was molding him. God was shaping him. God was fashioning him. God was preparing him for this moment where he stands before Pharaoh. God was preparing him for the assignment he was about to receive. And to summarize what's taking place in this chapter so far, we know that Pharaoh had some dreams. And his magicians and his wise men, they could not provide an interpretation. And so Joseph is hastily brought from the prison. And he stands before Pharaoh and he interprets these dreams and then he gives some instructions to Pharaoh based upon those dreams. We'll pick up our reading there in verse 33. He says this to uh, Pharaoh. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years and let them gather all the food of those good years that come. And lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities and that food shall be for store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. And we've studied all that together. If you've been with us, we talked about last week about this preparation that was made and the importance of preparing for the future. We talked about Pharaoh's dreams and the interpretations and all that. But the idea here is showing that Joseph showed great faith in offering these instructions Joseph had not asked for the or or Pharaoh had not asked for these instructions, but Joseph gives them nonetheless. So how would Pharaoh receive them? Keep reading verse 37. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. Can you imagine Pharaoh is sitting there and he's looking at a man that just a few minutes ago had been in prison. 
They had hastily brought him forth and he cleaned and shaved and changed his clothes. And he's standing there. And here's a man of eloquence, a man of integrity, a man of intelligence, a man whom obviously had the spirit of God with him working in his life. Now, I want you to notice today, first of all, as we continue our study, Joseph is promoted beginning in verse 37. He says the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of his, all his servants. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom the spirit of God is? And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, for as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according to thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, see, I've set thee over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephnathpaneah. And he gave him to wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Now, keep in mind, beloved, and I read that quickly on purpose as well, because this takes place very, very quickly. This transpires very rapidly. Joseph awoke that morning. He was a prisoner. And I'm sure he went about his day, as he normally does, up to the point where quickly they call him before Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He gives Pharaoh some instructions. He tells Pharaoh what to do. He lays down a job description. He lays down some responsibilities of a man who must be found to preserve life. And little did he know, beloved, that he was writing his own resume. He was, in just a short time, given several things. Notice, first of all, he was given a new job. And might I mention, this was not just any job. He was placed as second in command of Egypt. He was made prime minister, if you will. He was second only to Pharaoh himself. This was the ultimate rags to riches story. I love the way it progresses in verses 40 and 41. Look back at it. Thou shalt be over my house. That is Pharaoh's house. Then notice what it says. And according to thy word shall all my people be ruled. You'll be over my house. You'll be over my people. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, see, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. You're over my house. You're over my people. You're over all the land of Egypt. Victor Hamilton wrote, this is the third house, the third house in which Joseph has been placed. He has gone from Potiphar's house to the jailhouse to Pharaoh's house. I love this here. This new job held with it. Of course, had with it position, power, and authority. Look at the first part of verse 42. And Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it up on Joseph's hand. Now think about that. This was not just a class ring. This was not just a club ring. This was Pharaoh's ring. This was Pharaoh's seal. This was a blank check. This was Pharaoh's signature. This was Pharaoh's authority. And here Joseph standing just a few minutes ago, he'd been in prison. He, he'd been just in, in rags and, and looking disheveled and just uh, 
struggling along in a dungeon. And now he stands before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, you will be second in command. Here is my ring. I give you my authority. I'm the only one higher than you, Joseph. He was given a new job. Notice, secondly, he was given new clothes. Verse 42 says, they arrayed him in vestures of fine linen. Joseph's clothes, when you think about it, played a big part in his life. His clothes often got him into trouble. First, there was the coat of many colors, which his brothers stripped off of him in hatred. And they, of course, sent it back to the father. Then there was the garment that he left in uh, predator's hands, Potiphar's wife's hands, as he fled for his purity. He lost that coat, but kept his purity. And then the next clothes he wore were prison clothes. And you can imagine how ragged and rugged they were. But now he's arrayed in fine linen. You can rest assured, beloved, these clothes did not come from Walmart. Kmart with a goodwill. This was fine linen. These were expensive, fine clothes that fit his new position and his new station in life. In just a few minutes time now, he's been given a new job, new clothes. Look at the rest of part, verse 42. They put a gold chain about his neck. He was given a new chain, a new chain, a golden chain. Think about this. Just a few minutes ago, he was wearing a prisoner's chain and prisoner's clothes. And now he's wearing a golden chain and prince's clothes. Think about that. This was more than just something around his neck, just a necklace. Butler observed the chain signified the aristocracy of the statesman, whereas the ring gave authority. The chain was the symbol of authority. It would do the same thing that bars, stripes and chevrons do on military uniforms. People can look at Joseph and see his fine clothing and see this golden chain around his neck and realize here comes somebody. This man has authority. This man is in a position of authority. He was given a new job, new clothes, a new chain. Fourthly, he was given a new car. Look at verse 43. And he made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And it says they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. This new car, actually a chariot. He would be the equivalent of a presidential limousine to us. It was the second chariot. That means it was only a little bit. Not, it wasn't quite as nice as Pharaoh's chariot, but it was second. And it says there, he rode along and those in front of him, probably his security detail and other servants would cry out, bow the knee. Bow the knee. This reminds me, when we lived in Knoxville, I went over to see the presidential motorcade as it made its way uh, to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And to make a long story short, I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I think that I saw President Bush waving at us as he rode hurriedly down the road through the tinted windows. But that was not nearly as impressive to me as the other things I saw. It was not nearly as impressive as the guns, (laughs) the SWAT gear, the motorcycle policemen. It was an amazing sight to behold. There was no doubt in anyone's mind that somebody important had come to town. And that's the same idea when Joseph came rolling through. You knew this was no ordinary person. You knew this man was a man of authority, somebody important, a VIP. He was given a new job, new clothes, new chain, new car. Fifth, a new name. A new name. Verse 45 says, Zaphnathpaneah. And uh, maybe you're looking for a name for your next child. Uh, 
that's one you might want to consider. Um, you don't usually make it to the Z's in the back of the book, but, but there it is. If that doesn't work, Rodney's a really nice name, and I would recommend that. What does this name mean? Well, there's a lot of conjecture about it. Ken Hughes wrote, it's evident that Pharaoh was intent on Egyptianizing Joseph because he gave him a new name. This name is generally understood to mean God speaks and lives. But despite the fact that the name was Egyptian, it was an ongoing testimony to the superiority of Joseph's living, speaking God. Joseph's new name encapsulated divine reality. All this happened so quickly. The interesting thing is you don't see him being referred to by this name later on as we keep reading the story. But he's given a new name, a new job, new clothes, new chain, new car. And last and certainly not least, he was given a new wife. Talk about a day. You've had a day where it was a blessed day. Well, let's see what it says here in verse 45. He gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. Now think about this. Let me quote Hughes again. We see how thoroughly Pharaoh intended Joseph to become identified with Egypt. Asenath was of aristocratic blood, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. She was of such high born lineage that the Pharaohs sometimes chose wives from this family. The city of On was the center of worship of the sun god Re. As priest of On, Asenath's father presided over the temple city of Heliopolis. And officiated at all major festivals and supervised the other priests. So we understand that Potiphar, uh, priest of On, was a false uh, worshiper, a worshiper of false gods. I understand Hugh says a novel written in the first century A.D. entitled Joseph and Asenath portrays Asenath as being converted to the worship of Yahweh. And let me say, I don't know about what that novel says. I've never read it. Don't know if it's true or not. But I'm not sure about that, but I'm convinced in my heart of heart standing before you that she did come to faith in Yahweh. You say, why do I say that? Well, she was Joseph's wife and Joseph, his speech was all about God. When he opened his mouth, it was God, 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 God. God was the primary focus of his life. And I believe that she did indeed come to faith in Yahweh. He was given a new job, new clothes, new chain, new car, new name, new wife. When you consider all that, you see why this was a supreme, tremendous test for Joseph. He could have become so Egyptianized that he forgot about the God of his fathers, his God, Jehovah. But as we keep watching him here, beloved, it seems apparent to me he does not. Even the names he's going to give his sons. Will honor God. Joseph is promoted. Secondly, this morning, Joseph is prospering. He prospers, first of all, professionally. Look back at verse 46. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. And in the seven plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food of the cities and food of the field, which was round about every city laid up in the same. And Joseph gathered corn as the sand of the sea very much until until he left numbering, for it was without number. We see he he, uh, prospered professionally. Joseph did not sit by idly in the lap of luxury. He got busy carrying out God's plan for survival. He had work to do. He had work to do now. There was not there was much to do and not time to lose. He prospered professionally 
I'm getting kind of tongue tied with all these P's, but I'll keep going. He prospered professionally. Secondly, he prospered personally. Look at verse 50. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bare unto him. During these fruitful years, Asenath was also fruitful. She bore two sons to Joseph. And the names that Joseph gives these two sons are very interesting. Keep reading there. We find the very first son born was named Manasseh. Look at verse 51. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God, for God said he had made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Now, this name here has the idea of forgetting. That's what it means to forget. And it says there in verse 51, God had made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Does that mean it was wiped from his memory? Does that mean he, he just he never remembered his father anymore? He never remembered his brothers? No. Does that mean he forgot what happened to him? No. Obviously not. What he did forget, beloved, is this. He forgot the sting. He forgot the sting that accompanied those memories. In other words, he was not going to be filled with bitterness. Those past hurts and heartaches were not going to stand in the way of Joseph living his life today and tomorrow. I ran across something in my reading this past week. One pastor wrote, the past is past, not present. Unfortunately, we must admit that we spend far too much of our time fretting over what I call spilt milk items. The moments in life that can't be changed. Rather than giving attention to the most important assignment we have every morning, the choice of our attitude, we waste our creative energy over things that cannot be changed. He said the greatest waste of energy in America is not electricity or natural gas. It's the emotional and intellectual energy we waste fighting the inevitable situations in life. We must clearly understand we cannot change some things in life. He says when you fight the inevitable situations in life, you grow bitter and resentful. You get ulcers. You become twisted. You become negative. You become hateful. The past is over. Stop living life looking in the rearview mirror. Look forward. Press on. The best is yet to come. Let me tell you something. If ever there was a candidate in all the world to be eaten up with bitterness and hatred and resentfulness in his life and the desire to take revenge upon other people, it was Joseph. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't live in the past. He rejoices in God. He rejoices in the present. He rejoices in the future. And maybe you're here today and that's you. You say, man, I live in the past. The past is past, friend. Forgetting those things which are behind, we press forward toward the mark of the prize of the high calling in Jesus Christ. Think about it. He's the prime minister. He's second in command. Do you think that Potiphar was standing nearby guarding Pharaoh when he exalted Joseph to that position? Can you imagine the conversation if Potiphar and Predator are still married and still together when he went home that night and said, honey, guess what? What? Today, Joseph became prime minister. I hope you weren't lying when you accused him of trying to molest and abuse you. Did Joseph do that? I don't find it here. I don't find him attacking. What about the uh, butler, the cupbearer, who forgot Joseph? Two years he stays in prison. Was he standing by Pharaoh, still serving Pharaoh? Do I find Joseph lashing out and punishing him? I don't find it. What about his own brothers? 
He's over all the land of Egypt. A great, mighty army at his disposal. Does he go after them? No. No. He names the first child Manasseh. Forgetful. The second child is named Ephraim. It means fruitful. In the name of the second child, verse 52, Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. He basically named his son forgetful and fruitful. <laughs> J. Vernon McGee said you could call them amnesia and ambrosia. <laughs> Some more names for those who are having kids. After all these years in the pit, in the prison, in the palace with Joseph, it's still all about whom? God. God is still his focus. Joseph is promoted. Joseph is prospering. Thirdly, and finally this morning, Joseph is prepared. Verse 53, we find a turning point. And the seven years of plenteous that was in the land of Egypt were ended. And the seven years of dearth began to come according as Joseph had said. And the earth, it says there, and the earth. And the dearth, I should say, was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, go unto Joseph, what he saith to you do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold it to the Egyptians. And the famine waxed sore in all the land of Egypt. And all countries came into Egypt to Joseph for to buy corn because of the famine was sore in all the lands. Verse 53 tells us something. God was right. Joseph was right. Joseph believed God. He believed the interpretation. He believed the instruction. And God brought the past. The first part of Joseph's dream. Those days of plenty are gone. Now part two is beginning a terrible famine. But there was bread in Egypt. Why? Because Joseph believed God and lived for him. There was bread in Egypt. Why? Because Joseph endured the pit and the prison and faithfully served God in the palace. Joseph was a big godder. A big godder. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Let me explain. Robert Dick Wilson was one of the great professors at Princeton Theological Seminary in days gone by. And one of his former students had been invited back to preach in Miller Chapel 12 years after his graduation. And old Dr. Wilson came and sat down near the front. And at the close of the meeting, the old professor came up to his former student, cocked his head to the side in his characteristic way, extended his hand and said, if you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. That's encouraging. Isn't it? Hope you don't say the way out tonight today. I make it tonight. You probably will say that. He said, no, in all reality, I come, I only come once. I'm glad you're a big godder. When my boys come back, I come to see if they're big godders or little godders. And then I know what their ministry will be. Well, his former student asked him to explain. And he replied, he said, well, some men have a little God. And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scriptures to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God. And I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God. And he will bless your ministry. He paused a moment, smiled and said, God bless you and turned and walked out. Let me ask you, friend, today, are you a big godder or a little godder? 
Is your God great and mighty? Marvelous, wonderful. Or is he puny and small, the figment of your imagination, unable to do the least of the least? Joseph, beloved, had a big God. And we see in his story again today, his sovereignty and his, 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 um, his faithfulness in preserving life. We see God's faithfulness and graciousness in sending Joseph in the first place. He didn't enjoy being a slave. He didn't enjoy being sold. He didn't enjoy these things. But God was working. We see his graciousness and his faithfulness in showing Pharaoh before this famine came, giving him these dreams. And we see his graciousness and faithfulness in saving the people. Was the path easy for Joseph? No. And you know what? We all, all of us, if we're honest, we all want the palace. <laughs> Bring it on. I want the palace. But so few say, you know what? I'm willing to go through the pit and the prison to get to the palace. God, beloved, brought Joseph low, then exalted. That's the way the Lord works. He prepared Joseph. We see again today that truth in Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Joseph shows us how to handle promotion and prosperity. And here's what it is. Keep God as your focus. Keep God as your focus. I want you to understand something today. Hear me well. It was not Pharaoh that promoted Joseph. Oh, yes, I know humanly he did. But it was not Joseph. Not really. Or not Pharaoh. Not really. Why? Psalm 75, 6 and 7. For, for, for promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. But God is the judge. He putteth down one and setteth up another. It was God who placed Joseph in the palace. A man was the only survivor of a wreck. And he found himself on an uninhabited island. You can imagine the frustration and fears that would fill his heart. And after all, he managed to build himself a little hut. And he had gathered some things to the wreckage as much as he could. And he placed all those things he'd saved from the wreckage in this little hut. And he prayed anxiously for God to deliver him. And he anxiously scanned the horizon each day to, to weigh it down and, and, and notify any passing ships. One day he went to hunt for some food and he came back and he looked and his little hut was on fire. And all that he had went up in smoke. Was this not one of the worst things that could happen to such a man? Everything he had up in smoke. He finally fell asleep that night and he awoke the next morning to find a ship anchored off the island. And when the captain stepped on shore, he said these words. We saw your smoke signal and came. We saw your smoke signal and came. It cost the man everything he owned. But it brought about his rescue. If our lives are in God's hands, do we not believe God's word and live knowing that all things work together for good? Well, that means a pit. A prison, whatever, God is still on the throne. God is still in control, in control. Let me ask you in closing today, friend, and we're done. Where are you at in Joseph's story? We've gone a long time now looking at Joseph. Where are you at in the story? Maybe this morning you say, preacher, I'm in the pit. 
Maybe you say, preacher, I'm in predator's territory. Maybe you say, preacher, I'm in the prison. Maybe even some would say today, you know what? I'm in the palace. Friend, regardless of where you are, our God is faithful and we must trust him. We must wait on him. We must serve him. We must be faithful and keep our eyes stayed upon him. Realizing, living, holding on to this truth. All things, all things, the good things, the bad things, all things work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning real quickly? Maybe somebody here to say, you know what, preacher, I don't even know God. I don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I've never repented of my sin. I've never trusted Christ. Friend, your need today is salvation. You can have that today because Jesus Christ paid the price for you on Calvary. He shed his precious blood. He was laid in a borrowed tomb and arose again victorious. And because he lives, you can live. And today, if you've never received Christ as Savior, today's the day. Repent of your sin. Call out upon him. Say, I don't want my sin any longer. I want Christ. You can have eternal life before you leave this building. Christian, are you living in the past? Are you living in the past? Heartaches and hurts and sorrow and all that. Will you come today and surrender that and lay it at his feet? So I'm not going to live my life looking in the rearview mirror. I'm going to press on. I'm going to live today and the future as God enables me for his honor and his glory. The best is yet to be. You're not going to be dogged by the, the memories of the past. Maybe today you're living self-sufficiently. You're saying, well, I don't need anything. I don't need God. Confess that and forsake that. Finally, maybe you're living during one of those waiting times. Kind of like Joseph in that pit and Joseph in that prison. Waiting day in and day out, day in and day out, day in and day out. Seems like nothing ever changes. Nothing's going to change. But you know your God is still on the throne. He's still faithful. He still loves you. He's working things out. You've got to remain faithful to Him. Keep worshiping Him. Keep focused on Him. He truly is. God of gods, King of kings, Lord of lords. As the choir sang this morning, what we need to do is bow the knee. Bow the knee and say, Lord, you are master. You're in control. I trust you. Where are you at today in this story? Father, we love you. We praise you. We worship and adore you. Magnify your name in this place. You're a great God. We love you. Father, help us to live. Like you're a great God. Work in lives. Now I pray. Those that are lost. Bring them today in repentance. And faith in Jesus Christ. Believers living in the past. Help them to come and lay that at your feet today. Those living self-sufficiently. Help them to come confessing and forsaking that. And those father in those waiting times. Help them to come and bow the knee today. And say father I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. We pray these things in Jesus name.